Well, we're on the clock this morning, so uh, we're going to get started as the ushers finish up. If you have your Bibles along, you want to turn to the book of Luke. We're in chapter 9 this morning. And I wonder if I asked you um, uh, this question, what, what your response would be. Do you believe in miracles? And some of you might say, yeah, I, I believe that they have occurred. I'm not sure I've seen much of them in my time. Um, and then maybe follow up with the question, do you pray for miracles? That would be an interesting question to respond to as well. We're going to talk about the uh, really one of the most important, at least according to the gospel writers, one of the most important miracles Jesus did because all four of the gospel writers included it, feeding the 5,000. Well, let me tell you first about a woman in southern Malawi. See if I could say her name. I've been practicing this all week. Alufufazi. Alufafazi Yalu is a mother, lives in southern Malawi. She has AIDS. She lives in a house with her four-year-old child and her sister and her sister's two children. And she doesn't have much to survive with. She said the day that she was being interviewed by someone, she said, my child's very weak. She said, we had a little water today. I don't know if we're going to get anything to eat or not. She said, maybe someone will give us a sweet potato. There are mangoes in the trees, but I'm too weak to climb up and get them. Sometimes a neighbor will give me porridge. They tell me they'll put me on a food program list in March. I don't know if I'll live that long. Now that's to us, just foreign, isn't it? I just grabbed a bunch of things uh, this morning from our refrigerator and pantry. In our kitchen, we have a refrigerator freezer. It's full. Go out in the laundry, there's another refrigerator freezer. That's full. Right next to that's my parents' freezer. That's full. We have a pantry full of canned go goods and cabinets full of cooking uh, items and flour and sugar and spices and all of that. And yet for 800 million people in the world, it's just getting food is a chore. My guess is some of you guys come home from work and you call your wives and say, I'm on the way home, what are we having for dinner? And she'll tell you. My guess is that none of you say, were you able to find some food today? 800 million, two and a half times the population of the U.S., go to bed hungry every night. Two-thirds of them are in Asia. In Sub-Saharan Africa, which is the, probably the area of the world with the longest-running, ongoing food challenges, one in four are malnourished. Not just hungry, malnourished. Stunted growth and all that goes with that. Now, if you read your Bible, you find things in here like God feeding the Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years with manna from heaven. Supernatural food. There wasn't food to come by in the Egyptian desert. You read a story about a prophet who's on the run from Queen Jezebel and King Ahab, and, and God sends a bird to deliver food 
to him. And then you read about Jesus taking a little boy's lunch and turning it into a banquet for thousands. And we wonder, where's the miracle food today? God knows we need it. Where's the miracle food today? All right, let's read these verses. And then think and pray on them and talk about them. Beginning of verse 10. When the apostles returned, they told Jesus everything they had done. They had just come back from a mission trip. And then he slipped quietly away with them toward the town of Bethsaida. But the crowds found out where he was going, and they followed him. He welcomed them, taught them about the kingdom of God, and he healed those who were sick. Late in the afternoon, the 12 disciples came to him and said, Send the crowds away to the nearby villages and farms so they can find food and, and lodging for the night. There's nothing to eat here in this remote place. But Jesus said, You feed them. But we have only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Or are you expecting us to go and buy enough food for this whole crowd? For there were about 5,000 men there. And we don't know how many women and children. The way the culture was in those days, most women aren't going to go out and find babysitters for their kids. They're tending to things around the home. So probably that, that number would be fairly small. Perhaps there was another 1,000. So let's say 6,000. But we only have five loaves, uh, I'm sorry, um, Jesus replied, tell them to sit down in groups of about 50 each. And so the people all sat down. And Jesus took the five loaves, two fish. He looked up toward heaven, blessed them, and then breaking the loaves into pieces, he kept giving the bread and fish to the disciples so they could distribute it to the people. They all ate as much as they wanted, and afterward the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftovers. Um, Father, I pray for the wisdom and the insight of the Holy Spirit to both understand the miracle and to understand the import of the miracle. And some of us have to confess that today we're, um, we look at these kinds of things in scriptures and automatically maybe conclude well that couldn't or wouldn't happen today such skepticism which then informs our prayer lives on the other hand most of us would say I believe it could I don't see it that it does why is that and so we need the spirits this morning now the enemy would desperately love for us to draw inaccurate conclusions he would love for us to on the one hand blame you for certain things and on the other hand not to trust you for certain things and so we pray that you would muzzle him this morning tie him up so that he cannot influence our thinking. Rather, the word of, God, word of God and the Spirit of God would shape our thinking. And for those of us who tend to be skeptics, Lord, break down our unbelief 
and for those of us who demand things that you've not promised, increase our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Now the Bible tells us over in um, the book of John that Jesus sent the disciples out to find out how much food was available in the crowd. And that all they could come up with was this one boy out of all these thousands of people who had the foresight to bring some food along. Five loaves of barley, two fish. Now you may have heard from even some professing Christians that what happened here is not what we think happened. That Jesus didn't actually take just, you know, a few things that he had available to him and actually turn it into a lot more. He didn't do that. But rather what's in play here is that everybody had food along, but nobody was really willing to share it with anybody else until this little boy offered up his lunch and then he, they were all shamed into sharing theirs with everybody else. And the reason that some people have come up with this explanation is because they, they have a problem like Thomas Jefferson did with anything that's supernatural. If you've ever been to the Smithsonian Institute in uh, Washington, D.C., you can see the Thomas Jefferson Bible where he cut out everything that he thought was a lie in the Bible. And so there's these little, you know, exacto knife cutouts all through the Bible. It's the New Testament mostly. And he just couldn't believe that Jesus could or would do this kind of thing. And so this has become the, the new way of reshaping, reshaping the kind of narratives that we read about in the New Testament. There wasn't any miracle here. There was, well, really there was a miracle. It was a miracle of a heart being softened. But that's not what we're told in Scripture. Not only was there ample food for everybody to eat their fill, but they collected 12 baskets of leftovers after the meal was all over. Now, the reason that people like alternative explanations to miracles, I think twofold. Number one, in this sophisticated day and age of college degrees and uh, education, there is the belief that people who are smart, who are intelligent, who are educated, really can't believe that Moses uh, through the power of God, part of the Red Sea. I remember on my first year in Bible college, I got together with a, um, a former colleague. We had been salesmen together with this one company, and he's not a believer. And <clears throat> we were having lunch together, and, and he said, uh, I assume that as you're studying, you're, you're learning that the things that the Bible presents are, are really not always what actually happened. So, for example, he said, you know, the, the Red Sea, they talk about Moses crossing the Red Sea with all these people. That really was the Reed Sea. We got some misinterpretation there. And Reed Sea was a shallow, swampy area that you can walk across. This was my real first confrontation, or I should say encounter, with someone who didn't believe the supernatural. And uh, I was kind of caught flat-footed. And later I thought, yeah, but I think I remember it says they walked through on dry ground, which is not a swamp. And furthermore, somehow Pharaoh's army drowned in the swamp. But in general, we're going to find a lot of people are troubled by the supernatural, the miraculous that's presented in Scripture. 
They don't want to look odd. They don't want to look unsophisticated. They don't want to look uneducated. But I think there's a second reason that people have struggles with the supernatural. And that is because it's not been their experience. I wonder how many of you would say, I prayed and I prayed and I prayed for this, that, or the other thing. It would have required a miracle. And it didn't happen. I went to God again and again and again and again, and I cried out with great faith and with great passion and no answer, apparently, no answer. And so maybe it's that that has led you to say, I don't even, I don't even pray for miracles anymore. And I, I want to say that if you're in that category, <clears throat> we are essentially functional skeptics. If Jesus is true, was true when he declared that with God all, 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 it's a short word, but it's a big word, isn't it? All things are possible. Then surely that's true. And perhaps... Some of us need to repent of our functional skepticism. What Jesus did on that day was a miracle. But what Jesus did that day was not only a miracle. It was also a sign, a word that the um, evangelist John uses over and over and over again in his accounts about these amazing works of Jesus. It was a sign. Now, you all know what a sign is, right? If you're driving up Route 30, um, you'll see billboards uh, on your uh, side of the road, and they might be advertising, <clears throat> excuse me, it might be advertising a, a furniture store or a restaurant or, or an amusement park. Now, the sign is, n is not what it represents, right? So let's say, for example, there's a sign up here on Route 30 that advertises Dutch Wonderland. And so imagine you and your family are out one hot day and, and uh, you don't have any plans and you see this sign for Dutch Wonderland and think, oh, what a, what, what a wonderful day to go to Dutch Wonderland. And so you pull off the road at the sign and you shimmy up the post holding the sign. You somehow hang onto the post, get your wallet out, and you try to buy tickets for your family to go into Dutch Wonderland. About that time, a little white truck pulls up and some men in little white suits. And they say, what are you doing, sir? Well, I'm trying to take my family to Dutch Wonderland. And like, you do know this is a sign. Yeah, no, this is Dutch Wonderland. A sign is not the objective reality. A sign is pointing to an objective reality, something that's up the road. And so here's the sign for Dutch Wonderland, but Dutch Wonderland's a couple of miles up the road till you get there. And then you can go into the castle, pay your money, get tickets, and ride the water rides and the monorail and all that. If you, have, if you have a heating and air conditioning business and you have vans or trucks, you have signs on the sides of those trucks with a website and with a telephone number that they can call. The, the sign is not the objective reality. The sign is not Smith's heating and air conditioning. The sign is pointing you to Smith's heating and air conditioning so you can call them and have them come out and put a new system in or clean your furnace or whatever. And John says that the things that Jesus was doing were signs. 
They were pointing to something else. So looking at this, <clears throat> excuse me, looking at this miracle that Jesus did on this day with these thousands of people, was it solely for their nourishment or was there something else going on in addition? Now Jesus, we see again and again this word compassion used when he does miracles in the New Testament. So we know Jesus has a heart for people's needs and his concerns. However, on the day that he was out in the wilderness with the devil, you remember that? Luke chapter 4, the spirit had taken him out into the desert for the express purpose of being tested by the devil. And Jesus fasted for 40 days, and after 40 days of fasting, you are what? You are what? Stay with me here, hungry. And so, as you might expect, the very first temptation that the devil made with Jesus was to get some food, Jesus. Take one of these rocks and turn it into bread. And I don't know about you, but if I was Jesus, I'm like done. 40 days with no food. I told you before, I've never made it beyond three days fasting. I just kind of go nuts after three days. 40 days with no food. To the devil, Jesus replied this, no. Man does not live, people do not live by what alone? By bread alone, by food alone. And Matthew goes further to explain what else he said. People do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, there's more that you need and I need than food. Now, a little later today, some of you are going to go home and you're going to have a nice lunch with your family. Some of you are going to go out. You're going to go to a restaurant. You're going to buy lunch there. And when lunch is all over, you're going to sit back and go, ah, it was good. I'm full, satiated. And six hours later, you're not anymore. It's a temporary condition that's going to come back and come back and come back and come back. You're going to get hungry again and again and again and again. You see, this is why Jesus was saying people need more than just bread. You need more than just bread. There's something else that matters. Now, if you've ever had freshman psychology in college, that might make you scratch your head. <clears throat> because you would have studied about a guy named Abraham Maslow, who's a 20th century American psychologist, <clears throat> who developed what was called Maslow's Hierarchy. Anybody remember this? Maslow's Hierarchy. Maslow argued, and everybody's uh, fallen into the line, say, yeah, he's got it right. Maslow argued that there are certain levels of need that we all have as human beings that must be met first before we can care about other needs that we have in life. There's five tiers. The most basic one at the bottom is physical needs. Physical needs. The top one is self-actualization. This is where you want to get a job that really fulfills you and, and gives you meaning in life and exploits your gifts to their maximum potential and you live a life full of satisfaction and self-actualization. That's the top tier. 
That's where you go to after all of the other tiers have been met. So the bottom tier, the bottom level, Maslow's hierarchy, is that we need oxygen, food, water, sleep, and shelter. The next tier, <coughs> excuse me, the next tier is physical safety. So to contrast, to give you an idea of the contrast there, if you are really, really hungry and you haven't eaten three, four days, and you know that there's food in a particular village that's, that's surrounded by bandits, you might run the risk of being intercepted by bandits, being uh, attacked, being even killed, in order to get food. In other words, that second tier doesn't matter to you as much as the first tier does. You've got to have food. And so you'll risk your safety. So if Maslow's right, how does that work when Jesus says, people do not live by bread alone? Because Maslow didn't really factor in eternity. Maslow didn't really factor in the cosmic picture, only the worldly, earthly picture. And Jesus, when he came to earth, was announcing to the people that he came to that God's kingdom was breaking in. So when we if, remember back in the message where we were in Luke chapter 4 and Jesus, after he came off of his bout with the devil, uh, one of the things he did soon after that was preach in his uh, hometown synagogue in Nazareth. And he had pulled open the Isaiah scroll and he had read those immortal words from, from Isaiah where God was saying a time was coming in the future where he was going to break into the world and he was going to bring good news to the poor and he was going to help the blind see and, and he was going to, to set the captives free and so forth. And then Jesus concluded that sermon with these amazing words that had to stun everybody there. This day, this prophecy is fulfilled. Meaning, I am bringing God's kingdom to this earthly kingdom. There is this breaking in that's taking place. Here's the problem. And there are, this problem remains, the problem uh, affected the people in Jesus' day who were hearing him preach. And the problem can affect us today and does. The problem is the idea, we call this in theology triumphalism, the idea that the breaking in of Jesus, uh, breaking in of God's kingdom through Christ meant that everything has now arrived on planet earth that we anticipate. And we should expect, expect this resurrected world. You should not be sick ever. You should not be in prison ever. You should not have relational problems ever. You should not have problems paying your bills ever. And Jesus didn't say that, although it could be inferred by some of the things that he did do. What Jesus wanted desperately for the people to understand by the miracles and the signs that he was doing is that I, Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, I'm ushering in the kingdom. It's not just that the kingdom has arrived, but that I'm the one that's bringing it. It's still on the way. It's not fully here. In fact, we see in the scripture, as the end of the age approaches, actually things get worse and worse and worse before that glorious day when Jesus comes back and they get better and better and better and awesome. 
Jesus said this. Let me have you go to John. We're going to spend some time in John here. John chapter 4, verse 48. <clears throat> Jesus asked the question of the people that he was preaching to. Will you never believe in me unless you see miraculous signs and wonders? Now, again, let me just stop for a minute and do an aside here. There are some of us who, um, skeptics about miracles, that read that and say, see, I told you so, no miracles. That's not what Jesus is saying. But he's saying, you're missing the point of the miracles. You like the stuff that I do. But me, eh, you're not so interested in. This is the reason when, by the time Jesus is getting to the end of his ministry, he says, you ask for signs, you demand signs, but no more signs are going to be given to you except the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days, and then will be raised to life. There comes a point when the if impact of the signs is no longer being felt as intended, and Jesus says, en enough. Will you never believe in me? I'm the objective reality. Believe in me unless you see miraculous signs and wonders. Because the crowd was misreading the signs. Chapter 6, John. Now verse 14. Now in this, the beginning of these uh, verses here, verse 1, chapter 6, is this same story that we're talking about. Jesus multiplying the food for the crowd of 5,000. And right after John is finishing up, the leftovers have been gathered up, John's finishing up the story, he says this in verse 14. When the people saw Jesus do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, surely he is the prophet we have been expecting. What prophet were they expecting? The one that Moses prophesied about in Deuteronomy chapter 18. He says, a day is coming when God is going to raise up for you Israelites a prophet like me. And the Israelites understood that to be the coming future Messiah. And so the initial response to this miracle on the part of the people listening to Jesus is right. Hey, you must be the guy. You must be the one. But look at their response. Drawing that conclusion led to this plan, verse 15. When Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. Now you might say, well, what was wrong with that? We call Jesus king. We believe he's the king, king of kings and lord of lords. That's not the kind of king they were about to make. They were going to crown him the new Jewish king in the line of David, not spiritually, but in the line of David politically. And for once they were hoping that this king would overthrow Rome. Finally, somebody to release us from Roman bondage. You see, the signs were not having the desired effect on them. They were skewing their understanding of the signs. Were, oh, Jesus has come to deliver us here on earth and make everything right here on earth. And now Jesus, the next day, tries to correct all this. Follow the chronology here. The people scatter. They've been fed. They try to take him by force. Uh, he disappears, so they all scatter. Overnight, 
Jesus disappears. The disciples don't know where he's at, and nightfall comes, and they need to get back to the other side of the Galilee, uh, Sea of Galilee. So they get in the boat, head across the sea. Jesus nowhere to be found. In the middle of the night, this horrific storm comes up. And they're not sure they're going to make it. And all of a sudden, what do they see? Jesus walking to them on the water. And he gets in the boat, and the Bible says, another miracle, instantly they get to where they're going. So the next day, the same crowd that's been fed shows up. They find him. They track him down. And they said, how'd you get here? And now we're over at verse um, 26. And Jesus answered them. I tell you, now listen to them, this. He's talking to these people that he fed the day before with miracle food. And he's trying to correct their confusion. I tell you the truth. You want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. Now this is a concern that I have today about some Christians that they like the stuff of Jesus so much that the stuff eclipses Jesus. And what happens if the stuff goes away? By stuff, I mean the miraculous. Does their faith remain? Is it founded in the person of Christ, the Son of God who gave his life for them? Or is it rounded and founded in the stuff that he can do for them. You want to be with me because I fed you. You want food. You want good things. You want repaired marriages. You want a a, a friend that will call you up after having not, not spoken to you in two years. You want to have a better job. You want to have more money. You want to have great vacations. Not... Because you understood the miraculous signs. Don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Listen, spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. For God the Father has given me the seal of his approval. And you would think that this crowd of people who saw what they saw yesterday and now hear what they're hearing today would say... Oh, our bad. Now I get it. And instead, this is what they say. We want to perform God's works too. What should we do? Well, that's not a bad line to start with. He says, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. And now, now, (laughs) this is just mind-blowing. They answered, show us a miraculous sign. Huh? Huh? Do you remember remember the food you got yesterday? Oh, show us a miraculous sign if you want us. If you want us to believe in you, what are they saying? You already did and we didn't believe you. Give me another one. What are they going to say with this one? Oh, we need another one yet. What are they going to say after that one? Oh, we need another one. Jesus is saying, will you not believe in me unless I continue to give you miraculous signs? I already did. They ask him, what can you do? After all, our ancestors ate manna while they were journeying through the wilderness. The scriptures say Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My father did. And now he offers you the true bread 
from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes, the one, the person, the son of man, the son of God, the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And sir, they, they said, give us that bread every day. Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty again. Some of us need to repent of functional skepticism because frankly, we're not sure we agree with Jesus that with all, God all things are possible. And we see it in our prayer lives. On, uh, <clears throat> I think it was Wednesday morning, I was praying. And, and the Spirit of God prompted me to start praying about this disease I got diagnosed with back in February. And it dawned on me, <clears throat> that was the first time I prayed about this in two months. And uh, I was talking with Betty about this Friday night. I, I'm like, I'm trying to figure out why that is. Is it because I don't believe that God will or can heal? Or is it because I'm, you know, I'm feeling kind of okay it's so that's nothing real urgent? I know when I'm hanging over the commode, I can really pray well then. But I think some of us need to repent about functional skepticism. On the other hand, some of us might need to repent about the kind of spirit that the people in the crowd have. Basically saying, Jesus, unless you do X, Y, and Z for me, unless you continue to do this, this, and this, I'm not going to believe in you. I need constant signs. I need constant miracles. And we have to remember the miracles that are portrayed in the gospel accounts occurred over a period of three and a half years. We sometimes get the idea that it was constant, 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 constant miracles. There were people who didn't get healed in Jesus' day. There were crowds who gathered around him who didn't get miracle, miracle food. There were dead people who stayed dead while Jesus was here on earth. Sometimes we kind of think it's an all or nothing thing. We either have to believe in miracles all the time or we have to disbelieve in miracles any other time. I don't think that's the portrayal of scripture. I don't even think when Jesus was here, that's what was going on. And God is sovereign, just as Jesus was sovereignly doing miracles for some and not for others while he was here. God's sovereign, God chooses, but God can do anything. And maybe you're here this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus. And maybe the message that you need to wrestle with this morning is this bread of life that has come down from heaven for you who suffered and died on the cross so that you can have life because you as a sin sinner are bound to pay the penalty for your sin before God on your own you must die and then be judged with eternal judgment because of your sinfulness doesn't have to be that way the bread of life came down for you
and died in your place and offers you an unconditional pardon if you will but repent of your sin and put faith in Jesus Christ. That's what we're about to celebrate in communion. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Jesus, our Savior, the only hope any human being has on planet Earth today, yesterday, tomorrow. Truth be told, some of us um, get impatient when we pray, whether it's for healing or we pray for a change in circumstances, for deliverance in an unspeakably awful situation. And you don't come through, either ever or in the time that we think you should. We get impatient. Because we love the gifts that you give more than the giver. And on the other hand, some of us have shallow, unexciting, empty prayer lives and even lives because we look for nothing from your hand, ask for nothing from your hand, and then aren't surprised when we get nothing from your hand. Who ridicule and mock atheists and agnostics, and yet, to some degree, we have one foot in their camp. Forgive us for our unbelief. And I pray for those that don't know Christ, have not been captivated by his glory. Pray that you would open blind eyes open deaf ears and awaken a darkened mind. In Jesus' name and for their good, amen. So this morning, as we take the communion elements together, we are remembering the bread of life.